Welcome to the Human Performance Outliers podcast with your hosts, Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. At Human Performance Outliers podcast, we dive into a wide range of topics revolving around health, nutrition, and physical fitness. If you enjoy the show and wish to support us, please visit patreon.com forward slash HPO podcast. If you do not use Patreon but still wish to support us, please also consider checking out our PayPal page at paypal.me forward slash HPOpod. The link to both of those can also be found in the show notes. Finally, please consider subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening platform. Now, on to the next topic. Most people don't mess that up, so I, right, I wouldn't well, believe the... The different pronunciations I get. I saw person, Zach so. hit the Zach turned the red light on, so we're rolling right now. So, 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 is he not a ring? Uh, you are a physician, a sports medicine guy, if I'm not mistaken. You live down in Australia. You have been a low carbohydrate advocate for many years. You uh, are, you know, affiliated with a high level professional uh, Australian rules football team, the Melbourne Demons, which I have up on the screen behind me as a special tribute. We always try to do a guest specific background if i can manage it if i can figure out how not to mess up the computer <laughs> and thank you for coming on um can you just give uh, the folks a, a, you know i maybe i didn't steal too much so give, give us a little bit of, of your background info and then we can get into in, into the fun stuff if you don't mind yeah of course well firstly thanks very much uh sean and zach for having me on the uh the podcast i've uh, been a fan for quite a while now so yeah in terms of um, my story, so I live down in Melbourne, Australia, which is pretty much on the other side of the world from you guys, um, which you know can make it hard to coordinate these things, but we managed. So my background is I'm a general practitioner, so sort of a primary care physician or family physician, whatever you, different people call it. Uh, I've been doing that for about eight, nine years, um, having graduated from medical school oh, 16, 17 years ago now. Um, and once I finished my general practice, I sort of gravitated towards uh, sports medicine. Um, so I'm involved with the AFL team, uh, the Melbourne Demons. So for those that don't know, AFL is uh, one of the sort of elite sports in Australia. It's a very unique game. Um, it goes over about, you know, two, two and a half hours so it's a real mix of endurance and sort of explosive um, activity, as well as the full contact sports sport, 360 degrees. So it's uh, for people that haven't seen it before, it can take a little bit of a while to get used to. So they're, they're kind of my primary primary sort of roles. Um, so I see private patients in clinic. I look after the sports uh, sports team. With, couple of other doctors and look probably from a personal point of view I've you know it's a lot of you know typical story that you hear probably from a lot of the people on your podcast a few struggles with my weight in my earlier years exercised a lot tried a few different diets and then I sort of got to a point in 2010 where I just started uh, experimenting on myself because I thought you know the, the standard stuff that I meant to do isn't really working I, I cut uh, carbohydrates down but I was still probably getting more sugar than I needed to. So that sort of went after a few years. About 2013, I sort of adopted a, a, a what we'd call a low-carb sort of paleo-ketogenic template. Uh, experimented with that and had variations ever since. And probably in the last six months, I kept hearing about carnivore. It kept coming up on the radar 
patients kept asking, what do you think of this crazy carnivore fad? And I said, well, like I try to keep an open mind. So I said, look, personally, I don't know because I've never tried it. Um, and my weight was just creeping up for a number of reasons, whether it was sort of poor you know, sleep pattern, stress, these sort of things. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to try carnivore diet for one month. This is when our football season ended uh, back in September. I said, I'll try it for one month. And I pretty much kept going um, because I feel good. I feel like I've got more energy. I've dropped a fair bit of weight. I've leaned out. Um, and it tastes so bloody good. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a struggle to eat the food. It's not like you're eating, you know, you're eating plant no. food, typically. Um, you know, I saw, because I remember watching you present a video. It was either low-carb, you know, down under or some kind of ancestral health. I can't remember what it was a couple of years ago. And you were talking about, you know, your capacity to sprint. And you were, you were, you were, you were finding that the, the low-carbohydrate stuff had helped you in that regard. And so what's going on? Or what? I mean, I'm just kind of interested in what happened to kind of set you backwards over the last couple of years. I know what you talk yeah. about as physicians. Sure. So, yeah, so I, um, I do a little bit, like I came late to the sport, but I do a little bit of sprinting um, and a bit of gym work. It's nothing high level, obviously, but run with a, a, a few guys actually who there's this um, running event every year called the, the Stall Gift, um, which is sort of for... They call it pro athletes, but it's sort of handicap races with prize money, run on grass, um, sort of athletic tracks. So a few of the guys that I run with that uh, my coach looks after actually compete there. I've never gone to any event like that. but So I did a bit of uh, recreational running uh, or sort of amateur running um, for a few years now and mainly short distances. Uh, so my 100 metres is probably 11.8 uh, is my PB, which... I did hit my hit my thirties and twenty four point four I think for two hundred. So look, I found that when I was competing and I was doing that a few years back um, with the low carb diet, I was probably I was probably finding it quite easy because it helped me get my power to weight ratio down, uh, keeping my weight low, and a one off explosive effort really you're probably not even tapping into that much of your sort of glycogen reserve, it's probably even a precursor to that with your CP pathway. So um, look, probably some of my fitness probably went in the last few years, had a daughter, you know, that becomes your priority. She's nearly four now, so sleep goes out the window and, you know, stress job and all of those sort of things. So probably started eating a little bit more, I was a bit more relaxed with the, the low-carb side of things. Um, because I know for myself personally, I, I really got to keep it in a pretty narrow band of, of food if I want to maintain my weight. So, But in the last six months since September, it's probably the fittest I've been for a very long time, and I'm actually finding the sprinting uh, no problem at all. Um, in fact, repeat efforts are okay. Uh, recovery time feels like it's better. I don't feel like I'm lacking that energy and that high-end speed, but obviously it's N equals 1. Um, but yeah, I feel great doing it that way. Yeah. I want to just, you know, I mean, cause I, I've obviously I, I've seen the same thing personally and I've, you know, and I've, and I've talked to some of the, you know, some of the top people in the world with, with regard to muscle building, you know, like guys like Don Lane and Stu Phillips and, you know, Zach and I've had them on. And, you know, one of the things that we're seeing, you know, in contrast to a classic ketogenic diet, which traditionally has been very protein restrictive. Uh, we're seeing people that are still maintaining some level of ketosis or ketones, whether that's truly, you know, big deal or not. I think it's debatable in some cases, but 
we are seeing that, you know, in the absence of carbohydrates, a, a certainly significant upregulate regulation of gluconeogenesis and not really having glycogen issues. And I'm not seeing that personally. I find that, you know, there's, there's studies out there, particularly animal studies that show that an animal on a high protein diet basically doesn't tap into his glycogen stores at night. So they wake up the next day and they've got a full tank and they don't have to eat the bowl of oatmeal or the banana or the orange juice like the, the traditional carb-based athlete when they're still having high levels of glycogen. And I certainly do very, I mean, my like 500 meter row is, is, you know, outside of that CPK system, you know, you're out of that creatinine phosphate system, you're into the you're into the anaerobic glycolysis. And I'm definitely in there when I'm doing a 500 meter row. And I, you know, I, I basically just won the world championship. I set world records in that sport. So I know I'm using, I have the potential to use glucose uh, and I'm just getting it through gluconeogenesis. And I just wonder, you know, this may be too early, but I'm just wondering if you're, if you're seeing a utility for this in any, any of your athletes, are they, do you still have some athletes in the Melbourne demons that are low carb or considering maybe adding more meat in or how does, how's that going? Yeah, look, it's uh, you know, it's, it's a t- difficult one, isn't it, Sean? Because uh, on the one hand, I'm very open to experimenting on myself and I found all sorts of different things work. And obviously, in a professional sporting environment, you usually have um, the young guys that are already on one end of the bell curve that have, you know, gifted athletic performance to a degree. I mean, it, it's interesting with team sport because you either have the really good athletes that have to learn a bit more about football to to make it or you have the natural footballers that probably aren't the best athletes so you have a combination of the two now certainly when you work in a in a professional sporting organization where there's a a lot of people involved you 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 kind of have to be sort of open-minded with uh, the traditional ways of um, you know diet nutrition and all that a few years ago i sort of presented the playing group about sort of low carb options Um, i actually managed to get uh, tim noakes to come to the uh the club to, to do a lecture so he delivered the exact same message as me but they all listened to him because he's <laughs> such a great speaker um but a few people look it's like any you've got 45 people on your playing list so there's going to be a handful of people that'll be like no nah, that sounds ridiculous I'm not even going to consider it what's worked for me i'm going to continue on which is fine uh, a few people think that sounds interesting maybe i'll think about it and then there'll be there'll be a couple of people that um are interested in, in, in what, in what uh, some of the principles are. So we had a bit of a go a few years ago of trying a low-carb, higher-fat diet, which probably the best result from that was people sort of, the athletes cut out a lot of the junk from their diet, the sort of the excess sugar, that sort of stuff. There are probably a couple of players that still um, fall back on a sort of lower-carb template, uh, particularly in the off-season. Uh, some of the the players will will go on a sort of lower carb template to uh, uh, sort of strip weight or get leaner. Um, there is one of our players, uh, one of the captains actually, Jack Viney, who in sort of dabbles in intermittent fasting, um, which is kind of you know can be a secondary part of this sort of way of eating. Uh, and a lot of uh, the players sort of uh, do restrict their carbohydrates at certain times of year. Probably around game time, they're still carb loading but i think the quality of it is better we've got one one player in particular who's uh he's an interesting chap because he's uh he's not your average footballer he's read the um uh what's his name the good calories bad calories uh, gary torb's books and, and listens to podcast i think some of the guys actually listen to this hbo podcast as well and some of the coaches so there are a few people interested there there is a guy that 
you know, said that you, in the off-season he went a little bit sort of 80% carnivore and he felt like he maintained muscle mass and, and stripped weight. But certainly the game that we play, it's a, it's a, it's a really interesting game because you've got your, your, your mix of um, uh, endurance and sort of high-explosive uh, speed. So typically a, a player, depending on his position, could run 12 to 13 kilometres in two hours but have, you know, 300, 400 metres of you know, above 90% of their top speed and, and high-end efforts and quite a lot of threshold, uh, what we call threshold running uh, involved, and not to mention the contact and the wrestling. So it's... Uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, it's not too far removed from rugby, you know, and we've had, you know, I yeah. don't know if you're aware, Owen Franks, you know, he's one of the New Zealand All Blacks and he's been yeah. doing a carnivore diet for, I think, a year and a half now. And unfortunately, he tore a subscap, he tore a subscap, uh, yeah. Rotator cuff. I don't know. Hopefully, he's hopefully that's for public consumption. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. But he's debating whether to fix it or not. I'm not sure where he's at with that. But and I've seen, you know, like I said, we had a, we had a world jiu-jitsu champ on cardboard that We've had. Uh, uh, well, I, I'm familiar with uh, one of the top guys in the U.S. rowing team. In fact, the fastest guy in the U.S. rowing team was was on the cardboard diet. So it's interesting to see how it's changing a little bit. But let me ask you, um, you know, stepping away from your sports practice, are you still what are you doing with your, your regular day-to-day patients with regard to not dealing with high-end athletes, but just the, the normal person? Because we see such a, you know, it's the ubiquitousness of disease and metabolic disease and obesity. It's, it's overwhelming. I mean, our, Yeah, our, exactly. And, and I think that's kind of the, the population group that I'm probably most interested in, Sean, is uh, people in private clinic that are probably most vulnerable to um, sort of, the wrong dietary choices. I mean, most of these young guys, top end athletes will probably be okay, regardless of their diet in the early days, at least. Um, but certainly, so I, tr- I try and work uh, two or three um, half days or, or sessions in clinic, which is a Midtown Medical Clinic. It's a, it's a um, clinic in the city uh, in the Melbourne CBD. So it's a quite a unique clinic because it's actually got an emphasis on general practice and a, a dual um, sort of uh, client base in sports medicine. So we've got our physios and, and allied health to support that side of the business as well. But where I really enjoy it is the the usual general practice patients. So I get a, a, I get a real mix of patients. So I'll have people that specifically seek me out because they've seen me on some sort of low carb uh, website or something like that. So after eight years of practicing this, or probably five years of practicing this way, nowadays the patients I get are the, what I call the troubleshooting patients. So most of the people that have looked on the internet, found low carb, tried it out and done well, you're obviously not going to come and you're not going to see them because they usually things are going well for them. So I'll either get the patients who are doing really well on the diet, have uh, lost weight, feel good, but they've worried about their cholesterol. Uh, so that's one stream of people that I see, and we, we, we can talk a bit about some, some of my approaches with that. Then I see a, a lot of diabetics, uh, a lot of insulin dependence, uh, sort of insulin, um, insulin resistance. I see type 1 diabetics. I, I really enjoy working with the type 1 diabetics because, you know, you can do a lot for them. You can almost normalize their risk of complications down the track if you get their HbA1c and and their and their control right down. Um, I have seen the occasional patients who have looked at ketogenics or low carb as an adjunct, so cancer, epilepsy, some of the other maybe not so proven proven things, autoimmune, that sort of stuff. And then I'll see the 
the, the the average patient who's got no idea about low carb just as for their usual general practice stuff as well. So they, they're really good to sort of start sort of mentioning the idea of lifestyle, um, diet, um, uh, sleep, all that sort of stuff. But probably one of the most challenging groups of patients I have are probably um, women who are either in their 40s or perimenopausal who have tried every diet known to man since their early age there's overlying of uh, a bit of mental health anxiety uh, maybe some past history of eating disorders in the past as well so it's a real challenge and, and they're the group that i find hardest to get results quickly for a whole variety of reasons but often with a lot of patients we spend the first few uh, appointments even not even talking about diet just talking about mental health and psychology and, and realizing typical mothers that put everyone else first in their family and neglect themselves for years and are struggling. So it, it is hard work, but it is rewarding. Yeah. I mean, I've seen that that is a particularly difficult demographic, the perimenopausal woman that, you know, and, and is very, you know, it's very true that they basically their whole life been directed to eat this low fat, basically eat a bunch of salad, don't eat anything else. They end up, I think they're just generally just malnourished, even if they are carrying too many pounds. They just don't have, they just haven't had quality nutrition for decades probably. Yeah, exactly. I sort of, I sort of say that they're malnourished on the inside and overnourished on the outside. And uh, they just, they've, they've had so much, well, I guess, damage and, and fluctuations in their intake and their quality of food over so many years that, it, it, it's almost like you've got to build from scratch again, and that takes time. Yeah. Go ahead, Zach. Oh, I was just going to say, I think, like, you have an incredibly interesting perspective with nutrition, I think, because I think a lot of times when we look to professionals in the realm of nutrition, they're either kind of more or less hyper-focused or solely focused on athletes or, you know, more of, like, general health. And they kind of dial into that specific area, whereas you kind of branch out into both those worlds. So, you know, one thing I'm always really curious about and looking at is the lifestyle component of a high fat, low carb diet. So like the way I kind of describe it is, um, you know, someone who, or even if I take myself, for example, like if I, if I'm looking at myself during the off season or after a big race and I'm doing very little activity, I'm just recovering that's a massively different lifestyle than when I'm in peak training. Um, or if you could compare person to person, you get someone who maybe goes to the gym three times a week for, you know, 30 minutes is just trying to do just enough to kind of stay active versus, you know, someone who is, you know, training for say the Boston marathon or something like that. And I always tell folks like you want to look at that lifestyle component when you determine kind of how to structure your high fat, low carb diet. So, do you see like a pretty big difference between say the athletes who are interested and willing to kind of take on a high fat, low carb approach versus the protocol of say someone who's coming in for therapeutic reasons? Yeah, uh, definitely. Zach, you've hit the nail on the head there with, with the um, privilege that I have actually of dealing with um, that different um, type of patient base. So, with the with the athletes, these guys are you know they're finely tuned athletes. You know they have amazing sort of aerobic capabilities and these sort of things. So it's the ones that are interested. It's I talk general terms and we just talk about things that we can tweak. You know it's very hard to make any changes in the actual season because we play they play twenty two games over twenty three weeks 
plus final series if you if you make it plus practice games. So it's a very long season. So really, once the season started, you're not going to make many changes. You can sort of make a few little tweaks here and there, and, and the off season is where you can get benefits. But these are guys that could do a, do a, adopt a low carb, high fat diet, but they're still having 100, 150 grams of quality carbohydrate, and it's actually not even detrimental it's actually advantageous for them mm-hmm. um so it's it, it's a real sort of one end of the spectrum and in in private practice in, in in general practice really i have general principles but the beauty that i have is because i work at grassroots one-on-one with patients we can just come up with a very individualized approach which i think is the key to sort of any diet or any template it's really nutting out and individualizing it for the patient now often i'll you know, often it's about seeing the patient and working out what their needs are. And a lot of patients feel like they've tried everything. They're at their last sort of wit's end. And, you know, you might have a patient, for example, someone called Rebecca. So I just say, well, we're not going to put you on a low-carb diet. We're just going to put you on the Rebecca diet, which is specifically designed for you based on what I've seen in your history and what we can work out. And it's a, it's a, it's a plan A, B, C, D type approach. So it's not a, use a piece of paper do exactly what's on this sheet of paper. And if it doesn't work, you know, tough, it's all right, we've tried this. Well, that didn't seem to work. We'll try this. We'll fine tune it. But the, the most important thing I think with patients is finding an individual sustainability point is what I kind of coin it. It's like I say, there's no point being super strict or whatever you want to call it for three months and then bouncing back to your old habits. Let's find somewhere in the, in the middle of the spectrum where you can sustain. So even if that means, five, six days you eat pretty well and one day you can sort of do what you want, but you can maintain that over 12 to 18 months. To me, it's not ideal, but it's better than bouncing back and forward. So yeah, different patients have different needs. I'll see young patients in the clinic that are just trying to get their weight down. I'll see uh, people that have turned to this diet at age 70 um, and people um, for different uh, metabolic conditions as well. So Anecdotally, I find middle-aged men do okay. Uh, they've typically probably not given much thought to diet and their baseline's not so great. And when they adopt this diet, they tend to do a lot better than usually their partners or their wives. But yeah, there's probably a whole reason, a whole host of reasons for that. Yeah, I've never had a, a male consult call where I told him to eat more eggs and bacon and he was, you know, <laughs> timid about that yeah yeah <laughs> usually it's uh how much eggs and bacon can i eat okay i'm going yeah. to the top limit <laughs> yeah exactly but, right i mean uh, whether that's an innate sort of um, pull that um, some men have towards that sort of food that they always enjoyed but thought was not good for them or whether it's uh, the simplicity of the diet or the repetitiveness or not worrying about getting too fancy with it um i think a lot of uh men kind of really enjoy that and, and think, yep, I can do that. I can have it's, steak every day. Yeah. And I, I'm going to have to borrow the Rebecca diet. I think that's genius. Uh, just cause I think sometimes people, they, they run up against this, this idea where, well, my friend did it this way and it worked great for them. Therefore, if I plug this in, it's going to work the same way for me. And uh, they're, they're looking at it in the wrong angle then. hundred percent. I, I see that all the time. I see a lot of referrals of of people saying, well, you saw my friend or my friend went on this diet and they did, this is what they do. And I say, well, okay, that's good for them, but let's talk about you. Let's talk about what you've done in the past. So typical initial consult, I just get their backstory, their medical history, their family history, what different diets have done. 
uh, probably get some baseline blood tests if they haven't had them for a while. And then I just ask them to go away and say, just write down what you're eating at the moment. So if they haven't started eating low carb, I get to see what they're doing. I say, these are the things you're doing right. These are the things you're doing wrong. And often it's like, it's the opposite to what they expect. And if they are already starting with their low carb, I get to see what they're doing. So a lot of patients say, I'm doing low carb. But then when you see it written down over a week of what they're actually doing, you realize that for what their health history is or what their goals are, it's not conducive or we can make, make changes. And then they actually get buoyed or encouraged by that and think, oh, okay, there's, there's room to move and there's things we can try. So um, it definitely is about individualizing a diet for, for people. And, and things to take in is who else is living in the household, what else, how they're eating, their social situation, their workplace, yeah, even their cultural uh, upbringing and and you know there's some people that carbohydrate well most cultures are centered around carbohydrates and uh, they find it difficult to let go of um, whether it's rice or, or bread or uh, whatever the, the communal meal is once a week or whatever so it's about giving them a little bit and letting them have a little bit a lot of the time to get them to continue on the journey um, but as you say it's not about copying someone uh, and, and and you know this invite this sort of um, the sphere here with low carb and diet. There's a lot of excellent practitioners and uh, people on the internet and podcasts out there, but a lot of people have a slight point of difference. So people almost want a if you just give me the the hundred percent correct blueprint, whoever's right, and I'll follow it to the T. I know I'll be right. But there's so many points of differences that you have to uh, sort of mix and, and and sort of match the best versions of different. Um, um, perspectives of the diet, I think. Izzy, let me ask you about, um, because this is something that always comes up, you know, you have low-carb patients or keto patients or even crazy carnivore patients now, and many times they will see that, you know, a lot of things, they'll go on a diet, they'll lose weight, they'll feel great, you know, maybe their, their digestion gets better, their mood gets better, their joints stop hurting. You know, you do some labs on them and most of them look really good and then they'll, they'll have an elevated LDL cholesterol or total yeah. cholesterol and they get very worried about that. So what is your approach in that particular situation? Look, it is a very common um, one that I get. Um, and it's really, it's a difficult one because you're going to have different patients with different perspectives. And at the end of the day, I sort of go through as much information as I can um, without you know putting the giving basically i just say to the patient it's about assessing what your 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 personal level of risk is towards this what's your appetite of risk towards this and i and i talk about some of the studies that led us to believe about ldl cholesterol and i, I actually give them a bit of a science lesson first uh, not that i'm a great scientist but talk about the actual biochemistry of it all and what cholesterol means and what LDL is, what HDL is, and the fact that cholesterol as a, as a, a substance is actually vitally important to uh, cell, cell membrane, um, to the cell membrane, cell wall, and actually function. So it's no cholesterol, no life is the first thing I say. So, and then we go through a little bit of the history of how we all came to this point. Um, and then I talk about primary prevention and secondary prevention. So are we going on a statin because where we've already had a heart attack and we want to stop another one coming or whether we haven't had a heart attack, but all we've got is high cholesterol. And I sort of explain in terms of the risk factors of cardiovascular disease, 
uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, family history, smoking, by far to me, are in a completely different ballpark to uh, cholesterol or dyslipidemia because it, it is such a nuance to it. So then there's a difference between a patient who has very high sugars and poor HbA1c, high inflammatory markers and high cholesterol versus the one who has all their labs, really good, low inflammatory markers, excellent HbA1c and a, and a high uh, LDL um, and total cholesterol. So I go through that process. I talk about the theory of is it particle size that matters? Is it the oxidized or glycated particles that matter? Is it the total particles? And I tell them, look, I don't know 100% for sure, but I, I say these are the options. You change your diet back to where you were when your labs were okay. You subtly change your um, low-carb diet, maybe slightly reduce saturated fats, maybe uh, dairy fats particularly, and see what the labs show, if that makes you feel better, if the numbers are better. We do further investigations, which we don't have NMR spectroscopy, I can't tell the word, in Australia, but we have particle size counts and a few other surrogate measures like APO-A and APO-B, so I sort of offer them uh, LP, little a as well if people are interested. Um, or I say, look, what we're really doing is looking at a soft endpoint. If you really want to look at your risk, you can consider a, a CT angiogram or a calcium channel score, which probably isn't done a lot in Australia, the calcium channel score compared to America. Um, and then failing that, um, there is a cardiologist in Melbourne, um, David Eccleston, who works out here, interventional cardiologist, that is sympathetic towards low carb. So sometimes I refer them on to him to, to get an opinion because there's always outliers and um, that sort of situation. But it, And I also say, one blood test is just a, a point in time. And there's so many different things that could be causing your cholesterol to go up and down. Um, and it's about getting a trend and, and seeing where you sit. Um, and so I have had a few patients that have had LDLs or total cholesterol up in, you know, in 10, 11, 12. I think it's a different scale we use here, but um, that significantly almost double the, the limit that you want to have it. So, And they've gone off for calcium channel scores and CT angiograms and have pristine uh, um, coronary arteries with no evidence calcium channel scores close to zero. So uh, I don't know what to make of it all, but it, it is a challenge with those patients. And some patients are happy. They, they're happy with the literature. They're happy with what they've read and to just keep an eye on things. Others want further investigation. So it's really, again, an individualized approach, but it is a tricky one. I think it's a, an important part you bring up because you talk about, you know, basically two different populations because most, most of the population, you know, the United States, you know, we had a study that showed that 88% of our population is, is metabolically, you know, not healthy. You know, we, we've got some form of whether it's, you know, uh, dyslipidemia or, uh, you know, glucose problems or inflammatory problems or waste to height ratio problems or whatever. And then when you when you look at this different population of someone who is you know doesn't have any of those things but they're isolated with the other I do think we're just talking about you know we're, we're comparing apples to oranges or apples to steaks in, in, in a more appropriate oh, you know, exactly right it's such a different population set like I, I don't know what a a high LDL in the setting of someone eating a very nutritious protein uh, sorry nutrient dense high high food quality diet compared to someone who is smoking and eating a typical Western diet 
that has elevated cholesterol? I mean, I can guess, but I don't know for sure what the differences are. Uh, well, so I mean, we, have, we, we do have historical populations, you know, that we, we, we have some of that information on. But again, it's, it, we just don't have the data, and it's, it's tough to sort of get out of that paradigm. Do you know, um, what is the climate like in Australia right now? I mean, I know you're in Melbourne, and if I'm not mistaken, I think there was some huge, crazy vegan stopping traffic in the middle of the day type of thing that went on recently. And, and there's this plant-based stuff, and they're fighting with the farmers. And I, I was actually on TV in Australia a couple of weeks ago with, Channel Sunday night, channel Sunday yeah, I saw night. that, and, and it was kind of interesting, and it was kind of cool because the crew came out, and I knew from the from like within one second, I knew it was going to be it painted a reasonably good light because they they like steak, and like, you know when I was cooking my steaks, they wanted some, and so I, I knew it wasn't going to be a bash piece, which I've been subjected to millions of those, you know, targets. Yeah. What is it? What is the overall climate like with with regard to is is low carb considered like? Uh, something that, that is, is, is shunned in the medical computing? Is there people that accept that? Are we all um, you to go to plant-based or where, where are we at right there? Yeah, it's a, it's a difficult one because obviously because I'm involved in this area, um, there's probably that bias towards hearing about low carb and all that sort of stuff. So I think with a lot of, pla- uh, a lot, a lot of uh, um, countries and places around the world, there's probably a subset of the population sort of in the medical fraternity that are just, you know, completely by the book, traditionalists, these are the guidelines, what we follow. And look, these are good doctors and they're very good diagnosticians and, you know, you know, it's not a character flaw, but they're not interested or they don't have the time really probably to actually try and unravel some of the things that we already know. Um, I think the advantage for me was twofold. Uh, one, I wasn't a fantastic medical student back in the day. Uh, moved cities and I had a bit of freedom. So studies went on the top of my agenda always. So I, ha- I didn't have to unlearn a lot of things. Um, <laughs> and I was um, interested in, in diet and nutrition because of a personal um, sort of personal motivation to sort of get fit and healthy and, and that sort of thing. So I've always been interested in this, particularly for the last 10 years. So for me, um, learning and taking my learning not just from the traditional journals and textbooks has been great to learn off different people. And, and you take the good information with the bad information and realize where things are cherry picked. But to answer your, your question, I think probably where it was back in 2010, 11, 12, when I sort of started eating like this, most of my colleagues or friends, they thought I was crazy. Um, they thought I was, you know, on a fad or, you know, uh, there was some friendships that were strained a little bit, um, where people would be like, oh, you've lost a lot of weight, you look good, but you're probably going to have a heart attack and stuff like So you're saying that all the scientists over the last 30, 40 years are wrong and you're the one that's right. And I'm saying there's no, there's no sort of hint of me saying that. I'm just saying let's be open to critical thinking and reevaluating things because science isn't an ideology. It's an understanding of the way the world works. So I think... Since then, we're a lot more open to uh, low carb. I mean, there's still a lot of resistance around saturated fat, um, but I think that'll almost be a generational shift. And it's hard because it's not just about nutrition and and medicine, and it comes down to psychology. Like, I think if you're ever driving on a freeway, there's a temptation to think everyone going slower than you is an idiot and everyone going faster than you is crazy. So we always think where we are is right smack bang in the middle of whatever spectrum, whether it's politics or a view on diet, we always think we're kind of normal 
and people on the left or the right are the ones that are that are off center. Um, and, and the interesting thing is for me, uh, when I was eating low carb, uh, initially the thought of keto was like, oh, that's a bit extreme. And then keto was normal for me. And then it was like, well, carnivore, that's extreme. So right now, I'm, <laughs> you know, I'm on a, on a carnivore <laughs> template. I'll often, it's probably 95% of the time. But then I think I had a patient that I see regularly, you know, really interesting chap. He's pretty much carnivore, one meal a day, intermittent fasting. And he runs a, um, a company, a magazine that uh, looks at camping and hunting. So basically he tells me, he goes in the Australian mountains and he hunts for three or four days and he finds you know, venison or, or wild animals, uh, kills them, hunts them, brings them home, puts them in his freezer and eats off that for you know, months. So from my perspective, I could say, well, that guy's extreme. He only eats food, he kills himself. But um, so it's all about finding where you are on the spectrum. So, Back to the issue of veganism. Um, you know, look, obviously, everyone's entitled to their their viewpoint in life, but I do get a little bit uh, upset when people try and ram down ram that down the throat of other people. And, and going back to the protests, you know, Australia is a country where we're heavily um, reliant on farming and agriculture, and that's not just you know cattle farms, you know, wheat and sugar and, uh, and all of these sort of farms as well are out there. But um, so there is a bit of protection there from the government about how uh, vegan demonstrators are going, breaking into farms, trying to free animals. At the end of the day, you're going to someone's workplace and trespassing on their freedom. So it'd be the equivalent of a bunch of carnivores um, going to a sugar farm and starting to cut down the sugar cane and, and uh, harassing the farmers there. I mean, it's not, that's not something I would stand for either. Uh, I don't think that's what we're trying to do. What, what I'm trying to do is get a message out there about good health um, and trying to get the best out of ourselves, whether it's through diet, sleep, stress management, and actually being better people like eating carnival doesn't make me morally better than someone else. So, there could be two people in the room like you and I, uh, Sean, could agree on diet and, and on meat, but our ideas on capital punishment or refugees or even political parties may be polar opposites. That doesn't mean one of us is right and one of us is wrong. You can, you can agree on topic X with someone else and disagree on topic Y. And I think what's been lost um, nowadays in society with social media and you know twitter and 140 characters or less is the art of conversation where two people come with an idea that is differing and you actually respectfully discuss it learn from each other now it's about who's got the loudest voice who can shut the other person down and it turns into a you know before long it becomes a personal attack oh this guy's talking about carnivore diet but look at what he's done like i'm sure you had that issue sean where He's not even a real doctor. He's lost his license. So why would we listen to him? That sort of um, mantra. But um, eating and nutrition to me is not an ideology. And that's where a lot of um, vegan activists come from. Um, and, uh, and I think it's almost like they're, and it's not, it's not a personal thing. Like I, I know plenty of vegan people and they're, and they're fantastic people. But when people become militant about an idea and they get confused about what it is, I mean, are we talking about environment? Are we talking about ethics to animals? Are we talking about health? I mean, these are three things that 
uh, vegan activists usually talk about. And I think uh, they're probably wrong on all three levels, but um, <laughs> like, for example, at the moment I'm eating mainly beef, butter and And it's all huge shipping costs, flying them over in aeroplanes here. I eat yeah, one or two meals a day, not eating great quantities. I ride my bike to work every day, 60, 70 kilometers. Um, and I am as environmentally conscious as I can be. And the reality is if you really want to, well, there's a graphic that was, um, there's a guy called Jamie Scott, who's a head of an ancestral health um, society in New Zealand, uh, who put this excellent graphic up on Twitter uh, a few months ago when they were talking about a whole debate between cows causing animals. And then he had this graphic where it compared airplane flights, all this stuff. And the biggest whopping thing was have one fewer child was like a 50% or 50 fold um, less of an issue to greenhouse gas emissions um, in, in compared to anything, whether it's cows or cropland for soy and all this sort of stuff. So I think overpopulation is probably the biggest issue that we don't really talk about um, when it comes to environmental stuff. So I know we're probably getting off topic a little bit, but they're, they're just some of my thoughts. I think it's very complicated when it comes to saying that, yeah, the, the whole eat well, eat lancet thing that came out that said, eat a plant-based diet and we'll solve all the problems in the world. I think you're just opening yourself up to all sorts of other problems. Now for a word from our sponsors. All right, folks, this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast is brought to you by ButcherBox. ButcherBox offers you convenience by delivering your meat right to your door with free shipping. They also offer quality by having options such as 100% grass-fed and grass-finished beef, heritage breed pork, and free-range chicken. They also offer value with their goal to make clean meat accessible to as many people as possible by partnering with a collective of small farms. They are able to deliver you the best products for less than $6 per meal. They often run promos on their website for subscribers to get things like free pork or free bacon. If you enter promo code HPO at checkout, you can also knock an additional $20 off your first subscription. So head over to butcherbox.com and place your first order. Now back to the show. Well, I think it's interesting too, and you alluded to it when you were talking about people kind of just compartmentalizing an individual into a category based on one of their viewpoints or one of their kind of principles that they hold as valuable. And I think it's so much of it is because of like social media now where, you know, before the internet, you know, you maybe interact with a couple dozen people a day and you maybe have like, you know, 100, 200 people in your life that you're interacting with throughout the course of the year. When, whereas now you could, if you hopped on Twitter all day long, there's millions of people you could interact with. Huh, exactly. So then when you start to try to like, you know, group these individuals in your mind to keep, keep track of them all, now we're dealing with way more than we would have historically. And then it just makes it, a lot easier if you're not conscious of it to kind of put someone in a category like, Oh, this person eats a lot of meat. They must be uh, anti-environment, you know, left mm -hmm. or right wing and all these other weird categories that they've decided to put meat eaters into. And, and the same with, you yeah. know, vegetarian or a, a vegan, Oh, this, this vegan has to be a, you know, a lefty or a hippie or, you know, you see it happen all the time on both ends. 
I mean, you're right. And, and, and we forget to look at where our similarities are. Like, to be honest, you can actually find, depending on the, the subset, if you have someone on a carnivore diet and someone on a vegan diet, they actually may have a lot of similarities. They think they're being health conscious. They think they're doing what's best for their body. They're trying to promote wellness to other people. They're actually trying to live their best possible life and full of vitality. So those are some of the similarities and common ground we have versus someone who's almost given up and, you know, smokes a pack of cigarettes a day and is happy doing that. doesn't want to change and doesn't care about the environment or future generations. I mean, I think we're all trying in our own way to be better people or, or promote health promotion and, and all these sort of things. But you're right. Like you look at on Twitter and say that person, um, has the same diet philosophy as me, but he also supports Trump, for example, or, you know, we won't go into that, but you know, then it's like, well, if he's wrong about Trump, does that mean he's wrong about the diet too? But it's that whole group mentality thinking of it's all got to be all or nothing. You know, that, that George Orwell animal farm type picture of, you know, group thinking. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's, it's a hard one. It's human nature. And, and I think the best thing we can do is become aware of our own blind spots. And I'm sure I've got plenty of biases and blind spots and um, try as much as I can not to fall into confirmational bias or cognitive dissonance. But that's why I like talking at, um, I haven't done them very often, but talking at events that aren't specifically low carb or because then you're talking, you're trying to convert the, you're preaching to the converted. So I, I like the idea of panel discussions or debate respectfully with people that have an opposing view, you normally don't come with any conclusions, but it's just good to, to get the ideas out. Yeah, I think, I think it is good. And, you know, like I said, I've, I've done, I just got back from two weekends of preaching to one was a low carb conference. One was paleo. So the carnivore is still kind of out there and you still have oh. some people that, that, that are kind of not, you know, that they're going to question it, which is fine. I mean, I do like the point about, you know, the differing philosophies in different areas. We just, we just did a podcast earlier today with a gal in uh, Denmark, who's a physician as well. And she is on a carnivore diet for the reason of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome. She gave us, yeah. I mean, it was one of the more incredible things. She said she routinely yeah. wake up with three or four joints dislocated every single day, would That's spend amazing. half an hour putting her joints back in place and then go to work and try to do her day. And then she might have a couple of joint dislocations throughout the day. So you can imagine how debilitating that might be. And then she has a pain in the arthritic stuff that's come, that's come with that. And now almost a year into the carnivore diet, she hasn't had a single dislocation in a year, which is, is astonishing to me because this is a genetic disease, but she is a liberal uh, feminist and is very far on the left side of the spectrum. And, you know, and a lot of people in this, they seem to think that carnivore means, you know, you know, right wing, you know, conservative. Meat eating, yeah. Yeah. meathead. It's just human food in my view. And so I think it's so good to say that you know, we need to distance, distance politics, religion from nutrition because they have no place, you know. In the oh, exa world. Exactly right. So a way of eating is not an ideology. And ideology is basically a way that you view the world and your reaction to the world and the way your moral compass works, whether it's through religion or, you know, it's the same argument. Uh, without going too off track is people that say that if you're an atheist, you can't be, you don't have any morals, you know, because there's no guidebook, but it, it just superficial statements about these sort of things. So uh, going back to your patient that you mentioned, uh, your uh, person that you had a podcast with this morning, I think whether or not 
it's the diet per se or the mechanism or how it helps. I think sometimes when patients feel like they have a control over their own destiny by they're trying something that are, that's in their own hands, it goes a long way to getting a, a positive outcome. If someone goes on a carnivore or a low-carb diet against their will or against the, the idea that it'll help, it probably won't. But if they feel like they're doing something in their power, if someone has been on pills and been told, there's nothing you can do about it, take these pills for the rest of your life and we'll see how we go. The power of feeling like you're taking back control of your life and your health, yeah, it, it's hard to um, estimate how important that is because that can really fuel you in the right positive direction with health. Yeah, I think, I think hope is so critically important for some of these people that have been kicked around from specialist to specialist and they're, you know, they have 15 drug allergies and they've been on 75 different types of medications and no one can figure it out and they're depressed and put on, you know, you know, uh, you know, drugs to, to deal with that. And it just kind of gets very frustrating, but let me just turn the question, turn it around a little bit because we had, you know, I don't know if you heard, we had David Unwin on a while back and it was just such a beautiful interview and he's such a, you know, he's been in medicine forever, but he, what he fundamentally was, was exciting for me is it changed when he changed his practice to, to sort of incorporate more of the lifestyle, less of the, mm-hmm. you know, you know, hamster on the wheel, cranking out patients, writing prescriptions, that it made his, his own life better, you know, and, and granted you're, you're, you know, you're helping more patients, but since you sort of, you know, sort of through a personal journey, discovered diet and then incorporating in your practice, has that changed your appreciation of your practice or changed your practice to what's more enjoyable for you in any way? Oh, look, absolutely. I mean, the hard things are when you have patients with chronic health issues or uh, dietary, that the, the consults take time. And uh, often, you know, typically in general practice, we have a 15-minute consult. And even if someone books a double consult, it's 30 minutes. So I'm notoriously known to my patients for running behind. <laughs> but sometimes you just, you just need to take the time and, you know, delve into some of the deeper layers. And look, my style is not for everyone. Um, some people like the quick in and out, tell me the problem, whatever. But the way I approach medicine is the patient and the doctor form a collaboration between the two of them to f- get you back towards your goal. I mean, some of the things that I ask in a consult are, are typically what are your goals and what are your fears? And we they come in about weight loss, but we talk about other stuff and we sort of make sure we look at the whole patient. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's incredibly rewarding when um, you feel like someone's – uh, come in and, and you made a difference to their life. Um, and sometimes some patients overstate how much of the impact you've had. I mean, I just guide them and they do the hard work. But I think, and without sounding like, a, you know, I, I'm, it's the only way of doing it or I'm the only person that does it, there's a lot of excellent doctors out there. But I think in this day and age where there is that age of the internet where people can get information, I think it's very important for doctors to not say, well, how many years of med school did you go through or that's just bullshit or whatever. It's about saying, okay, you're going to have access to the information. My job is to sort of safeguard you against things that uh, are really uh, good sources of information, totally wrong. And, you know, I'm not sure it's too early to tell and actually work with them. Because if you shut someone down too quickly, you're going to lose them and they're not going to form that rapport or trust with you. So it's the gone of the days where you can say, I'm the doctor, you're the patient, listen to me. It's about, oh, you know, you can learn an incredible amount from your patients. There's some patients that have rare genetic diseases or, or weird diseases that I've never heard of. I actually learn from them because I'm like, well, I don't, I don't remember this or I haven't heard of this. And um, 
it's interesting. So you, I think it's very important to actually listen to what the patient is. And a lot of times they come in and what they come up with, there's a lot of weird stuff that they come in with. And it's your job to educate them and say, well, actually, this is not right for these reasons. And let's go down a different pathway. But as you said in the original thing, it is very rewarding. Um, sometimes I wish, you know, I could spread myself further. Like I, I, I love the, the, the work I do at the football club because it's, you know, 45 players that you look after consistently you know them inside and out and it's a high pressure environment where you know the stakes are high you're trying to get them up for games but more than that you're looking after their their young men there's a lot of issues with mental health and all these other aspects of of medicine so you're doing that and then you have the patients you see in clinic as well so that's great as well and then I try and balance family life as well so I don't work Fridays at the moment I try and spend it with my daughter who um you know, you know, parenting changes things, as I'm sure you guys know. And what I really like to to do, what what gives me the most satisfaction is probably being a good role model to her, um, and being able to. Well, I turned 40 this year, being able to run around, go to the park, have the energy after work to play on the monkey bars, run around on slides, go to the park, lift her up. You know, when when your child looks at you and says, "Daddy, you're the strongest man in the world," it's probably yeah. Uh, <laughs> which is not true, but it's probably the, the, the greatest satisfaction you can get out there. And I want to milk that for as long as it lasts. Yeah. You know, my goal is not to be able to play with my kids as I get older. Cause I'm in my fifties and I still got a lot of young kids. My goal is to beat them. You know, yeah. to, be to beat those guys. You let them, you know, let them try to win and, and give them a good yeah. rent for their money. So that's my goal. Kind of funny. Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a great goal to have. I remember when I was a kid and the first time you beat your dad at a sport, you think, You've made it in life, but uh, yeah, exactly right. And and that, that's a sad thing. You see a lot of patients, you know, they're, they're great parents and they're involved, but they just don't have the physical capacity that, to run around with kids all day. Um, and that's a shame. Yeah, I mean, I think they, and honestly, I think they should be able to do that. Do you find, um, you know, and this is the same, you know, this 15-minute visit thing. I mean, it's, it's, it's become the norm. Is there a way... In, in Australia, perhaps, I mean, is there any people that are pushing for, you know, let's, let's step away from this model because it's just a, you know, it's, it's just big, you know, hamsters on a wheel, spinning it out, trying to, mm. trying to turn the wheel faster and faster, see more patients because there's so much disease out there and maybe we're better served if we can step back and say, look, I can see a hundred people at a time in a, in a seminar and give them all the same message and give them some tools so we can, you know, decrease this overall burden. Because it's, it's physicians are getting burned out. You see physicians that are depressed, some of them are suicidal. I mean, I see that in yeah. the US for sure. I don't know if it's the same in Australia, but it's just like it's an overwhelming, never ending deluge of over, overweight, obese, chronically ill, depressed patients that didn't exist before. This is, yeah. a new, this is a new phenomenon. It seems like the model that we have set up now is inadequate to deal with that. And I think there has to be a different model. I don't know. This is philosophical and hopefully Yeah, no, I, I think I think when you're talking about chronic ill health, there's a lot of scope for, for, for something like that. I mean, don't get me wrong, but I, I see other patients as well. Like you'll see someone come in who's, you know, fallen over or got a fracture or, you know, got an acute chest infection or something like that. So 15 minutes is quite easy for that sort of patient. But the guys that we're talking about, I think it's a, probably a two-pronged approach, which is what you mentioned, a get a message out to a lot of people at once and then having a system in your clinic or wherever you work where you can adequately get through uh, the requirement and whether that's employing 
uh, nurses or allied health staff that you can offload some of the counselling that you do. Um, that's certainly an option. Like I'm not, I'm not a great business person. I'm more a clinician at heart. So I'm sure I could have set up a, a model or a clinic if I had the know-how. But the thing is, I actually like the nitty-gritty of the one-on-one with the patient. So I like spending that time with them rather than saying, yeah, it's probably easier for me to say, this is the issue, let's outsource this um, diabetic education or this um, dietary management because I kind of enjoy it. And, and that whole issue of the hamster on the wheel and churning them out, it's a, it's a real tough one because we have two sorts of practices in, in, in Australia, I suppose. One is uh, where the clinic is bulk billing the patient. So basically the government or through what they call Medicare covers the cost of the whole appointment. So the patient's not out of pocket. So in a clinic like that, excellent doctors, but to generate the same income, you need a higher volume of patients. So you often will be seeing five, six, seven, eight patients an hour. Whereas in a private billing clinic, which is uh, where I work, um, you have a, on a sort of fee on top of what Medicare covers. So you don't have that same pressure to see volume of patients and generate the same income in, in an hour. So I'll, I'll often see maybe two patients in an hour, sometimes three, sometimes four. So I, I do get the chance to see them. But as you say, there's so many patients out there that don't get seen. And I think when it comes to physician fatigue, if you feel like you don't have the tools to help the patient or you're just fighting a never-ending battle, that's when it becomes a problem. For me, I feel excited when I get a new patient with metabolic illness because I feel like we can start from scratch. We can try stuff they haven't heard before. You know, we can win this. And, I give, and, I, and I'm hopeful and, and give them hope and they come out normally feeling quite happy. And look, not all of them come back. Sometimes I come back six months later or 12 months later and say, oh, I saw you 12 months ago. I just wasn't in the right mindset to change my diet then, but I'm here now. And I say, look, there's no ill feelings. I'm always here, ready to see you whenever you're ready to start this journey. It's, it's, it's fine. So, yeah. And I think where I'm lucky is variety. So if I was in clinic every day, five days a week, I probably would get fatigued as well. But having the football... I also work at the actual AFL headquarters looking at uh, research and past players with concussion. So there's a few different things that I have on my plate um, and sort of what I call a side hobby is the low carb and nutrition and, and all of this sort of stuff. So I think having that variety and having that feeling that you can win the battle at least one-on-one is a long way of uh, um, sort of going against that fatigue, I think. Just, uh, just kind of, kind of interestingly. I mean, you've been on a carnivore diet for a month or so now. Um, have your well, since uh, since September actually September oh, September. So so quite a yeah. while. So that's yeah. been almost what eight months or something like that. Yeah, calculating right. Um, have your colleagues sort of said you're just a crazy Z again, or what, where are they? At Not that? really. They're kind of used to crazy Z now. Um, <laughs> and to be honest there was a lot of patients who I was seeing for low carb and, and they'd see me and I'd say, well, I'm not telling you what do what I do, but I'm eating carnivore now. And a lot of them said, you know what? I didn't want to say it, but I'm almost gravitating that way as well. I don't eat that many vegetables anymore. I'm sort of more a carnivore template either. And it was almost like a relief that they could say that. And I'm like, it's, you know, there's no, you don't have to be ashamed or afraid of, if you feel like it's working for your health, it's, it's not, don't worry about the stigma. And I, I think it, we're too, I'm too busy these days to worry about what my friends and colleagues say anyway. And, and most of them have realized that friendships are probably more important than worrying about 
me doing something different to, to what they're doing. And uh, the guys in the clinic I work with are excellent. It's actually uh, the practice managers. Are, she's a former dietitian, but she's very open-minded and efficient. And um, they, they see the relationships I have with patients as the most important thing. So there's no backlash of what are you doing and why are you eating like this? Uh, you'll still get comments here and there from people who are maybe ill-informed and say, oh, you don't like the environment because you're only eating cows. And I'm like, well... Um, like I said before, locally, locally grass-fed, um, pasture-raised cows and locally sourced butter and eggs, I think are probably not too bad for the environment. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't get a lot of criticism. Or maybe I've learned to tune it out now. Um, but yeah. certainly I don't have a high profile like, like you, Sean, and, and you, you know, you're a target out there. Um, uh, but uh, I'm a, I have a bit more finesse in my personality probably. Yeah, I mean, I'm an orthopedic guy. I'm used to hitting stuff with a hammer, so I just that's, kind of that's, hard and see what right. happens. You know, it's kind of fun. Yeah. But, uh, you know, this is, um, I mean, your point about the locally sourced pasture finished, you know, beef is, is re- literally probably the best thing you could possibly do for the environment when it comes to perspective, at least if we're talking about oh, exactly right. and that sort of stuff. But let me, I just want to get your personal perspective because, you know, we have a lot of testimonials from people and for, for whatever reason, people tend to think when doctors say stuff, it has more bearing, like their story is somehow more true than someone else's. But I mean, you know, and, uh, and you and I know that's, that's not true, but it's, I'd like just since you've gone carnivore, I just like, have you noticed any improvements? What, 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 what's been the difference from where you were before to now? Yeah, look, certainly. Um, so since September to now, um, I said to myself, because the football season finished in September and I'd have more time. I said, you know what? this is a good time to try this carnivore experiment. I had dabbled with it earlier in the year for four or five weeks and it, it was okay. But then I sort of went back to eating a, a sort of low carb template or, or whatnot. So for me personally, it's been amazing and it's been fantastic. And it's probably not the only thing that's happened at the same time. So I've gone carnivore. I've also introduced some intermittent fasting, um, which I've done in the past, but probably a bit more of a conscious effort. I've really increased my exercise as well. Um, uh, riding to work every day I made a commitment to doing that uh, hitting the gym you know with the weights program running all these sort of things so I've been doing lots of different things at once in the off season obviously I spent more time with my daughter as well so I think the benefits of that are hard to to state Um, and probably up until the last few months was sleeping a bit better as well so all those things happen at once so you can't 100% say it's the the carnivore diet but having said that since i've eaten the carnivore template with fasting i found that i feel less bloated i feel like i have more energy um, i feel like i'm recovering faster i'm pushing heavier weights in the gym so i've i mean nothing to your standard sean but i hit a 210 kilogram deadlift and my, my goal is to get to 227 kilograms by the end of the year because that's 500 pounds and 500 pounds sounds a lot sexier than 227 kilos. <laughs> so I'm working my way to that. And I've found that I'm hitting PBs in the gym. I'm feeling stronger, um, um, not getting injured. And whether that's because I've got consistent training loads of the diet, it's impossible to say, but I feel like what I'm doing is actually making a difference. And to me, I haven't had any issues with constipation, which is often the first question people ask, well, you're, you're eating all that meat. Isn't it just rotting in your stomach? And I'm like, well, no, it's not rotting in my stomach. My body's using it for its requirements. Um, 
yeah, so to me, it feels fantastic. And it's not for everyone. Like I know um, I'm probably with my genetic background. So my parents are from the subcontinent of Pakistan originally. Um, and we know in India and in that region, the, the, the amount of diabetes and prediabetes is just skyrocketing. And you don't often have to be very heavy or very overweight. You can typical, you know, thin arms and legs, a little bit of a pot belly bang, you're in, in diabetes land with, with that culture. So that's probably working against me. I think I'm a big, big believer in that whole thing of the blueprint for what your uh, metabolic health is going to be like starts in the womb. So if there's a exposure of uh, high levels of glucose and insulin in, in utero, I think it sets a blueprint for uh, um, insulin resistance down the track. And I think my mum had a, a real fascination with McDonald's hot chips when she was pregnant with me and it was a very carb-heavy diet. She, she reckons she put on at least 30 kilos during that pregnancy. And compared to my siblings, I have a much higher propensity to put on weight when I have even a small amount of carbohydrates. So for me, I know where my sweet spot is. And I don't say every patient or every person out there has to be there, but I think every generation, we're probably getting more and more sensitive, or sorry, resistant to carbohydrates because the blueprint's being set in utero. So every generation's getting sicker and, and fatter earlier. Um, and that's why when people talk about, you know, carbs have been around for thousands of years, why is why are they a problem now? I think it's our our blueprints changing that we're becoming more responsive to them added with the insult of sugar on top. But coming back to me, I, I feel fantastic. What I said, I said to myself, I'm going to do this for one month. I've kept going. Um, it's not all the time. I find every now and then I'll have some, some nuts or um, even dairy. I, I, I'll have a fair bit of cheese, but I, I find when I eat nuts and when I eat cheese, the next day I don't feel as good. And whether that's, because I overeat them or whether it's something in the, in the nuts, it's almost a feeling of being a bit hungover and slow. Um, so I actually thrive really well on red meat, eggs and butter. Yeah. That's a pretty common observation about people who have been doing this for a while. And I, and I, and again, I, I certainly try to convey the message that, that, that what you're doing is perfectly, you know, you know, you should find what works and you know, it doesn't, it's not like, like a, like a vegan ideology is, you know, Oh my gosh, you ate a nut. You, you, you're kicked out of the club, you know, you're blasphemy. You know, that, I just don't, I just don't think that's helpful for, for anybody, but I think that's really, you know, really neat to see. Are you doing any, I mean, cause some people, people get really obsessed about lab studies. Are you doing any of that stuff to sort of see what's going on comparatively? Look, I, I know the limitations of them and the, I understand how they are, so I don't get too excited, but let me hear your experience with that. Yeah. Look, I think the pendulum swings, I think back in 2013 when I sort of started keto, I was very, very into metabolic markers and labs and it probably was a byproduct of, you know, what am I doing to myself? And, and some of the people that I sort of followed, like, you know, Peter Atiyah and a few of, the, a few of these guys who are very sort of numbers-driven and analytical. So I was like, let me do some numbers. And being a medical physician, you have access to, you can order your own labs and do whatever you want to do. Um, so I was probably back then a lot more um, um, interested in my labs and, and I was one of the people where my cholesterol did go up and my LDL did go up, but I'm satisfied with that, what that means for my risk profile for me. 
Um, the lowest my HbA1c was was about 4.3 uh, back in the day. And there was a time where I did the keto finger pricks as well, more for self-experiment to see what different foods did for me. And by the end of it, I could just feel when I was in ketosis. So to be honest, I thought I haven't done any labs recently. I thought I'd give myself, you know, six to 12 months eating this way and then, and then reassess and, and do some baseline blood tests. Um, Cause you know, it's a difficult one because you have life insurance and all these other things as well. And, and if patients are, you know, not that it's any of their business, but, or need for me to say anything, but they want to be guided as well. Like if you're doing this and what are your blood showing? Um, it's, it's a talking point, but I'm probably looking at doing some bloods around my uh, 40th, which is in a, about a month or so, um, as well as some other health <laughs> um, checks. But yeah, look, I think it's important, but I think um, bloods and, on all, and all of these things have to be taken in conjunction with how the patient's feeling, what results you are, what your goals are. Um, and it doesn't mean you ignore ignore things, but you, you, for chronic health, you look at where the trend line is rather than the absolute figure at a point in time. So I probably swung a little bit away from, uh, personally for myself, of, of checking and rechecking and checking. Like if I'm concerned about my cholesterol or if it's consistently higher, I'd rather maybe go off and do a calcium channel score or a CT angiogram despite the radiation to get a bit of a harder endpoint than what the cholesterol means. But um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I try to get the message out that we have to look at real actually chronic clinical markers and things like waist to height, simple as that. I mean, that, yeah. that can be very powerful. It can be more powerful than what your LDL cholesterol is. And, and, and we call, I think a lot of people call it a coronary artery calcium scan here. Yeah. Um, you know, we have, uh, you know, a lot of things like that you can do, even if it's just, Basic, you know, you, VO2 max and, and those things that are, that are probably yeah. reflective of what your chronic condition well, is. For, so for, me, for, for me, Sean, since September to now, um, I was at 98 kilos, which is oh, probably roughly yeah. around 200 pounds. 98 kilos when I started. Uh, 216, September. 215. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 98, and I dropped down to about 82. And now I've sort of found a steady spot of about 85, 86. So, um, that to me is evidence that my metabolic health is heading in the right direction. My waist measurements come down. Um, my exercise capacity has gone up my recovery and my sleep are better. Uh, and yet I will do some uh, blood tests to see how they complement each other. But to me, losing that fat around the waist is probably the most important marker for me of what insulin, um, insulin resistance and, um, you know, longevity and, and all these things. Um, yeah, I don't think there's a single, I mean, we can debate about the relevance of certain blood markers and I think it's controversial about a lot of stuff, but I don't think there's anybody out there that's saying having a lot of visceral fat or abdominal fat is ever a good thing. I mean, generally, no. you know, it's yeah, always exactly. a good sign when it gets better and your risk for all kinds of problems goes away. And, and, and at the end of the day, if we look at this from a global perspective, I think we're very fortunate in countries like Australia and America and, and Europe to have the ability and the availability to all sorts of testing. And I think it is important for people to be there on, on, on sort of the innovative forefront and looking at these things and, and understanding what they mean. But from a global perspective of 7 billion people, not everyone's going to be able to do their HbA1c and their cholesterol and understand it, but everyone in the world can measure their waste. Um, and if that's your one surrogate marker for, for health, um, then that's the one I would take. 
Yeah, I agree. That's a pretty good one. Just because uh, you pointed out, you're, you're, you're originally your family's from Pakistan, and, and there's mm. with you know, in contrast to the next door neighbors in India, where there's some very big religious uh, you know prohibitions on eating meat with the Hindu. Uh, but I mean, still, I think the Pakistan diet is very low in meat in general, if I'm not mistaken, traditionally. Um, I'm just wondering how you. Yeah, look, family... it's it's a hard one because I, I I was born here and raised here, so. I, it's secondhand information to go on, but my wife, um, she moved to Australia about 10 years ago, 12 years ago now from Pakistan. So she grew up there. So probably she's the best one to, to, to give information. But what she tells me is that they have the, with meat over there, obviously um, in a, in a Muslim background, similar to uh, Judaism, uh, no pork and bacon and, and all that sort of stuff. So, they eat halal meat. Um, so basically beef, lamb. But what she tells me is because the population is not very very well off, well, you know, the income distribution is not great. So the majority of people can't afford a lot of meat. So probably that's where the issue arises from um, high meat diets. But they have the staples that are, um, you know, based around grains and rice and, 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 and all of that sort of stuff. But probably traditionally sugar was very expensive, so there wasn't a big issue from that that's changed obviously now but the interesting thing she tells me is growing up because meat was expensive and most people didn't have a lot of money they would maximize their use of the animal so they would eat nose to tail like you would not believe um so i'm talking about dishes like my mother-in-law when she comes sometimes visits will cook up stuff for me and because i'm open mind i'll give it a, i'll give it a go and have it taste i've, I've had lamb brain and chicken heart and all these sort of different things. So they eat all the organs. And, and as you know, organ meat in, in the Western world tends to be the cheapest you can get in your butcher. So when people talk about, um, I can't afford to eat this way, we actually, the liver in the back is very cheap. But um, so, so going back to, to what they eat traditionally over there, I think it is probably traditional diets probably been um, diluted now, but it's still a lot more meat heavy than I would say uh, next door in India where there's a, a high cultural sort of pull towards vegan or vegetarianism. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, that's something to point out that most people that are on plant-based diets in the world don't do so by choice. They do so because they're, they just can't afford, they can't afford the, to yeah. get nutrition from animals. And well, it's exactly right. I did some, um, 10 years ago, I took some time and traveled, but I finished up, uh, in Malawi in Africa, I did some uh, volunteer work there for a short period and their diet was based around semolina um, and cassava, which are sort of grains. And and really, if you asked any of them out there, it was not by choice. It was because exactly as you say, if there was an alternative to eat uh, uh, meat or, or whatnot out there, um, that would be, the chicken was probably easier to eat out there. But definitely, as you say, most populations around the world barring subsets in, in, in the Western world uh, are just trying to survive um, that issue of overpopulation, uh, poor distribution of wealth, et cetera, et cetera, creates conditions where people are eating mass produced grain based food because it's the only thing that can provide the output or the, the production output to sustain that many people. Yeah, I think I saw a stat not too long ago that was looking at 
exactly what you were talking about. And I, if I remember right, I think it was something like 1.4 billion people on the planet follow a vegetarian diet. But when you account for choice, it falls down to like 10% of that number. So yeah, it's, and, it's very much and, up. And, and Zach, there's a massive difference between a vegetarian diet somewhere in India where someone's having a little bit of rice and some lentils and maybe some eggplant versus a, and I don't want to sound flippant, but a, you know, a, a goji berry almond milk smoothie topped yeah. with cacao and maca root and, and, and these sort of things, they're, they're, they're totally different polar opposites. Um, so yeah, big differences. Yeah. It's almost like that's where I think the, the, maybe the carnivore diet is a little unique in that you can obviously make an argument about nose to tail versus muscle meat or a variety of different meats. But really, even when you go to the polar ends of that approach, it's pretty uniform. Yeah. And then you yeah. get to like vegetarian or even vegan. There's just such a variety of what you can do within. Yeah. That. Well, there's one vegan that will eat, um, you know, lots of salads and vegetables and maybe some rice and some lentils that are produced the right way versus the other vegan that'll eat Oreos and, um, you know, coconut yogurt and mm -hmm. these sort of things. So food products, I'd still say the vegan that actually eats food versus food products is probably going to do better. But yeah, you're right. There is not a lot of wiggle room when it comes to a carnivore template. Uh, maybe the way you produce it or the way you cook it or, what you eat it with but the foundations are pretty much the same and the the other thing is when it comes to the animals like here in australia there's um i'm not sure how people overseas would respond to it but when people talk about you know environmental costs and farming and all that kangaroo meat is actually uh readily available here in australia um and it's actually it cooked the right way very nutritious and these are wild animals. So there's no actual environmental cost of farming and, and that sort of thing. So, and that's what the traditional indigenous cultures in Australia really thrived on kangaroo meat, um, which is a leaner meat, but basically, yeah, that sort of uh, gets rid of that whole argument about, you know, the cows take up all the space for farming and, and the land and all of this uh, kangaroos are there anyway. There's, there's millions of kangaroos in Australia um, in some parts they're almost considered pests. So, yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, the problem, yeah, I guess the issue with kangaroo would be just getting enough fat in there would be, you know, to, to, yeah. solely to, to subsist on that in a carnivore style. But do you, um, in Melbourne, is there a very large Aboriginal population that you deal with, deal with in your clinic, or, or is that not part where um, located? Look, there's, there's um, Indigenous Australian uh, communities throughout um, Australia and in pockets. Probably where my clinic is, I don't generally see many um, Indigenous Australians through the clinic. Um, there's, a lot, there's a lot of other clinics specifically designed for Indigenous uh, populations, but I do have the privilege of working with um, uh, some of our players. There's about four or five players at our club from Indigenous background, and, and some of these guys are... Um, amazingly naturally gifted um, athletes um, who even they don't come through a lot of a lot of them get drafted to the the teams and they don't come from the traditional you know upbringing in terms of exposure to football they just basically go out and learn it themselves and and obviously it's a um, 
naturally athletic uh, population. So there is a, a good representation of, of Indigenous Australians in, in AFL football, which is fantastic. And I'm glad you brought it, brought the topic up because I think there's a whole host of um, issues with uh, Indigenous Australians in uh, Australia in terms of life expectancy, diabetes risk, um, kidney disease, cardiovascular disease, um, weight issues. And I, I, I really, I mean, there's forgetting all the political things that happened with, you know, the white Australia policy and stolen generation and all these things in the last hundred years um, and, and, and social issues, but, the exposure to alcohol, uh, white grains, so your flour and sugar uh, and carbohydrates, I think is a significant player in, in where Indigenous Australians struggle with their health, um, particularly because they've had almost less than 200 years to go from a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, which includes nutrition. Um, so... You know, none of that food is available here. And then in, in 200 years, going to a diet that's heavy in sugary drinks and uh, cheap carbs, and it's no wonder that you're seeing accelerated um, ill health. So it's the same pop issues that most of the population have, but just at a faster rate and at a faster rate in each generation. Um, and there's an actual uh, study, I'm, I can flick it to you if you like, it was done, it's done, I think, in the 80s where someone took a, I think it was a small cohort of Indigenous Australians who had type 2 diabetes and basically put them back on their traditional diet from pre-exposure um, to uh, Western foods um, for a short period. And in all of them, it showed incredible improvement in their diabetic markers and their H3A1C and their, and their, and their health. So, you know, that's somewhere where I think it's almost even more important to try and push a sort of whatever you want to call it, an indigenous diet or a paleo template or whatever it is towards um, this culture. And it may be one of the, it's not the only factor, but it may be one of the factors that will help bring some equalization or closing the gap, as I say here, between the health issues. Yeah, I mean, we see that throughout the world with the American, you know, the American, Native American population. We see that with the Pacific Island population. Any place that's been had relative late exposure culturally to these westernized foods, it just decimates their population very rapidly. Within a generation or two, they go from being robust, healthy, active, tall, lean, muscular people to, to basically the opposite. And it's just it's sad to see. Um, and, yeah, I mean, going back to whatever their native you know, diet would be. And then again, that's, I think that's part of this carnivore thing. Ultimately, I think human beings were very carnivorous in our native state for, for probably several million years, you know, recognizing that probably at some point we were eating fruit in the trees with, with before mm. we left the, the early primate line and kind of advanced through there. But I mean, it's, it's just, you know, when you, when you, when you make a, a, a hypothesis on how to, how to eat, I think the evolutionary one, is decent. You know, there's other people who say, oh, we'll make our, we'll make our hypothesis from nutritional epidemiology. And, mm. you know, I, I'm less excited about that particular thing, but I unfortunately have to get out of here. Guys. So that's fine. Uh, Z, can you tell us where people might find, you know, you on either social media or events or anything like that? Yeah. Or anything else you'd like to mention? Before? Sure. So, um, firstly, thanks so much, um, Zach and Sean for having me on the show. <laughs> um, really honored to, to be part of the um, 
the group of people that you have on here. So, look, I'm not very uh, um, uh, internet or social media savvy, but I do have a Instagram and Twitter and Facebook account that's called Dr. Z Easy Health, which um, whatever, that's the name. But, yeah, I'll post a few things here and there. Um, sometimes it's general health stuff. Sometimes it's diet stuff sometimes it's personal stuff but it's a lot of stuff's recycled through the twitter sphere and all that uh in terms of where people can see me if they want to see me for for a consult it's at uh, midtown medical clinic in melbourne in the city um but um yeah that's kind of where i'm at with it i don't have any like i'm a clinician more than a researcher i'd love to do some research but at the moment it's just basically seeing patients trying to live by example and um yeah just learn more about it and have an open mind and be open to critical thinking it's nice to have another another carnivore doctor in the tribe here so yeah, yeah. <laughs> welcome yeah no, no i think our, i think our listeners are going to love this one z and it was uh it was a great learning experience for both of us as well i actually think like yours will pair nicely with uh dr unwin who we had on a, probably i think he was episode 52 if i don't remember but if I remember right, but uh, he kind of had that same lifestyle, holistic approach, come work with where the patient is, where they're at, and you know, that kind of open-minded view of things. And uh, it was a breath of fresh air to hear, and our listeners thought so as well. So I think they'll probably uh, see that in you as well. So thanks again for giving us your time, and I'll be sure to link the, the ways to find you on the show notes. Fantastic. Thanks, guys. Hey folks, Human Performance Outliers podcast is growing and due to the growth, we are looking to take on some new sponsors. So if you feel like your company or organization would be a good fit for our audience, please do not hesitate to reach out to hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Human Performance Outliers podcast with hosts Dr. Sean Baker and Zach Bitter. If you enjoyed the show, please consider following us on social media and checking out our websites. Links to those can be found in the show notes. Also, if you have any questions or comments, please do not hesitate to shoot us an email at hpopodcast at gmail.com. Thanks again for tuning into the show.